Hi, Naklistas. Helen here. We've got a great episode today catching up with NACLA editor Laura Weiss and contributors Melissa Garcia-Veles and Marlon Fernandez. Before we play the episode, here's a quick update on what's going on with DACA. So the Trump administration has announced that it's ending DACA, and first-time applications to the program are no longer being accepted. But if your DACA expires on or before March 5th of next year, 2018, you can still apply for a two-year renewal. Your application has to be received by October 5th of this year. So if you're in the New York City area and you need help paying for your renewal, please check out the Dreamer Loan Fund through New Economy NYC. We'll put a link in the show notes. Also, if you'd like to help DACA recipients cover the cost of applying for renewal, you can follow that link in the show notes to donate. All right, here's the show. Welcome to NACLA Radio. I'm your host, Helen Hazelwood-Isaac, and I'm joined today by NACLA's managing editor, Laura Weiss, as well as uh, Marlon Fernandez and Melissa Garcia-Velez, two uh, NACLA contributors who I spoke to last month. Uh, They are both recipients of DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival program, um, and they were also part of some of the first members of the Lehman CUNY College um, Dream Team. So they've acted as organizers as part, in part of the Dreamer community, but they've also um, gone on after college to contribute to immigrant, um, academic, and uh, just municipal activities in a really fantastic way. So we're here to talk to them today about uh, the Trump administration's announcement that it's going to be rescinding the DACA program and this new um kind of renewed effort to push Congress to start uh, start action towards a legislative path to citizenship for DREAMers. Um, so Marlon, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having us and allowing us to have this platform to reach a broader audience. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, and hi, Melissa, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Good. So um, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about how... Um, how the narrative uh, of dreamers is really problematic and how it kind of divides um, the immigrant community and and particularly the undocumented immigrant community into kind of respectable or desirable immigrants, um, deserving immigrants and those who are not. Um, So Marlon, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how these recent developments have maybe um, emphasized uh, what a problem that is, and also maybe presented an opportunity for um, us to really uh, attack that narrative head on. Right. So um, with DACA being resigned, it seems that it's given light to the 800,000 people who are directly affected by the program. Uh, most of these uh, people, uh, as many people have used the, the terming of DACA, DACA in itself is a reward program um, for high achievers, for students, um, Anyone who, you know, is able to qualify for DACA, DACA has very strict guidelines on who qualifies and who doesn't. Um, and by doing so, uh, this has promoted the agenda of deserving and undeserving immigrants. So pinpointing the recipients of DACA, they're compared to HB1 visa holders who are high-skilled, valuable workers, contributors to the economy. When we pinpoint that identity versus the identity of, you know, the mom who's at home raising these kids is not worthy of the same type of relief versus the DACA recipient, you know, who might have a college degree and might be working at a Fortune 500 company, we see a distinct difference between the two individuals. 
um, just based on their high levels and high skill set. And all of a sudden, you have all of these com- companies um, who might be employing DACA recipients, whether it be, you know, a big company um, or a small, smaller nonprofit just coming out and kind of promoting that narrative of deserving and of uh, really um, contributing to the economy. And by doing that, we're dehumanizing and really deconstructing the immigrant narrative of what it means um to be uh, promoting the economy, right? Because we also need the mother who is raising the kids. Um, so every time we use the, the word dreamer, we're, de- we're demonizing, you know, someone who, someone's mom, someone's dad, um, someone who, quote unquote, is a low, uh, undeserving immigrant who might uh, be associated with, you know, being a busboy or kind of these jobs that we've come associate with um, non-contributing to the U.S. economy or not as deserving. And what's really, this is really harming us in, um, at the larger immigration platform is, you know, we're putting the dreamers, quote unquote, first as the most deserving of immigration relief without acknowledging the other 11 million immigrants who are also contributors and members who have been here probably 10 years or more in the United States and who are just as much part of our communities as are the dreamers. Um, and now with DACA being at risk, there's a domino effect going on about uh, you know, who's being affected and who's not, but it's not just the companies, it's families also that are being affected. And I think it's really important to acknowledge, um, that immigrants should be seen as equal, as all deserving, whether they are DACA recipients, whether they are the mom at home, whether they are the pizza man, the delivery guy, um, everyone should be deserving of something based on their humanity and the contributions that they can make towards, um, the U.S. and really just the American values that they've inherited and that they've upheld up until this day. Yeah, well said, absolutely. So we've seen, as you said, you know, this this um, announcement by Jeff Sessions and, and the Trump administration that they're going to rescind DACA has has brought those um, 800,000 some DACA recipients um, into the light, um, under the spotlight, um, and it's become a part of the national conversation in a way that it hadn't been for a while. There are a lot of people on the left and the right who are talking about DACA, what it means to be a DACA recipient. Um, but you know what I've what I've been seeing over the past week or so, even on the uh, the left, is this uh, inclination to to kind of do nothing to challenge that narrative, saying you know DACA recipients were brought over the border by no fault of their own, implying that their parents are somehow at fault for making a choice that was really better for their families and for themselves and for their children. Um, and and uh, engaging, like you said, Marlon, in that kind of economic argument, like, oh, well, DACA recipients contribute to the economy as if their humanity is up for discussion if they don't. Um, so there's also, you know, a similar um, kind of misstep happening in uh, in the legislative arena uh, amongst lawmakers, Republicans, Democrats, and otherwise who uh, are speaking out against the Trump administration's decision now, but who have a voting record um, against the DREAM Act. And, you know, that was a, a legislative attempt that was made largely by Democrats, but there are Democrats that voted it down. And there are also, of course, a lot of Republicans who did the same. Um, another part, I think, of the the original Dream Act, which which eventually failed, that is going under discussed, is the fact that it wasn't just a path to citizenship for a select slice of the undocumented community. It was also uh, an overhaul of border security of the immigration um, system, and and this was part of how it got so many Republican votes. So at the same time as um, the 
Democrats were trying to create a path to citizenship for uh, quote unquote deserving immigrant communities, they were also striking a deal with Republicans that sort of tacitly implied that immigrants are bad, that immigration is bad, that the border needs to be um, toughened, and 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 this was a this kind of solidifying of the border is is part of what manufactured. Um, such an increase in the young undocumented population of the states in the first place. So, you know, Melissa, before we started recording, you you mentioned how important it's, it is, especially right now, as we are facing this short six-month window um, for legislative action to hold these lawmakers accountable, to hold the government accountable. But you also, um, you mentioned something about, you know, when are we, uh, maybe you can restate it for me now that we're recording, but, you know, when are we going to, to shift the way that we talk to the government and about the government's role. Um, and when are we going to stop? I think I think you used the word begging. When are we going to stop begging them to acknowledge the humanity of people? Um, so yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about accountability and, and how to change the tone of the conversation with uh, our government. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's something that I've and other people in the community have been actually um advocating for thinking about, you know, even during the time of DACA, even during the time of the DREAM Act, um, and this sort of push of changing the, you know, very respectable politics of what a good um, organizer or activist, you know, does in order to engage with the government, in order to engage with those people who are not necessarily agreeing with us. And we saw this change in um, in activism uh, by undocumented young people themselves in 2011, 2012, 2013, when there was a push um, to push the envelope of we had young people who did self-deportation to then cross the border uh, to you know make a point about asylum. We had young people who infiltrated detention centers, risking staying there or being deported. Um, and, you know, in, in a very much more aggressive way of, of, of and not even aggressive, right, of the way of just um, really pushing of, you know, if, if the government was not responding to letters, but they were not responding to um, cars, to phone calls, uh, then they, you know, they were, they didn't, um, were not really understanding uh, the needs and the urgency of what our communities were going through. So we had documented even doing hunger strikes and still, you know, to this day. Um, and with this very much acknowledgement and understanding that the government was not really serving our communities, um, you know, that it was, it's been, and it had, and it continues to be a predominantly white old man, um, government that continues to serve the, the needs and, 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 um, and protect a very specific group of people in this country. Um, and so today, uh, you know, what we're seeing is just the consequences of following the good, um, also, right, the good services and the good lead of, you know, we're here, we, this is what we've done for you. Why are you still not giving us what we deserve? Um, and I think it was one of the civil rights activists who said, you know, you cannot, um, necessarily do that to a government if they don't have a soul and a conscience. And the United mm-hmm. States government has none, right? Um, to, as Marlene was mentioning earlier, um, you know, we have to, the, the argument goes beyond DACA necessarily at the moment, right? We're still having children who are in detention centers in Dilly and Carnes, um, Texas. We still have um, mothers, parents, um, you know, who are still being deported. And so there has to be also an outreach about that, right? What kind of government are we being if we're keeping young babies and, and kids in detention centers? Um, 
what are we doing and how we acknowledge our, our historical uh, guilt, right, of why people might are migrating in the first place, right? Are we going to talk about how the United States government funnels, finance uh, a lot of the dictatorships that we saw in Central and South America and in the Caribbean and which such has pushed people to migrate because the conditions that were then left were not... Um, we're not well enough, right, for, for them to continue living. Are we going to acknowledge that, right? And I think, as in anything, um, you know, if we're, if, if we're not able to acknowledge the, the historical consequences, the historical reasons why people um, have been migrating, um, and to really understand why this government does not want to acknowledge that, right? Why they want to keep the powers, right? Why they do not want a lot of our communities to be, um, to be really free and liberated, um, we're not going to be able to move forward um, in, a, in, in gaining a much more permanent status, right? Because even these Dream Act versions, um, and I was one, right, when I joined the movement that when the Dream Act version, um, it was also tied to militarization and to joining the military. Um, and I will argue that even, you know, despite of that, that we still needed something like the Dream Act. But today, um, you know, and, and, and understanding my also sense of privileges of the places I've been able to be at, the conversations I've been able to be part of, um, understanding that I, I and then other people in the community are not going to compromise anymore. Um, that we do not want a bill that is tied to militarization. We do not want a bill that is tied to border patrol and increasing border patrol. Um, we do not want that because we know that that's not going to be it's not good for our communities um, and it's only going to benefit those in power. Um, and we're not here for that. Um, and so I think ensuring that we're not playing the the card where we are appealing to white America, that we're not appealing to the government. Um, it hasn't worked. It didn't work and it's not going to work. Uh, so we really need to do a really deep reflection of who are we fighting for? Really? Um, what are we fighting for? For real? Um, and how is our strategies going to have to change? Because the strategies didn't, didn't necessarily work in, 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 um, for the long term, right? Many of us were fully aware that DACA, that was a product of undocumented youth activism. Um, it was not a product necessarily out of the good heart of the government. Um, was not going to be forever. Um, but we were willing to continue organizing. We knew that uh, the, the fight was long, was going to be much difficult, much longer. Um, and we understand now too that the law, the fight is beyond just legalization. Um, our communities are facing very different issues, displacement, um, not being able to, uh, you know, continue to live their honoring lives. Um, so all of this goes into play and it has to be going to play. I think we can have, um, you know, we can ad advocate and organize for something for a, a quick, um, response to DACA, something that will, you know, enable for many of us to, to work. And at the same time, we can have these discussions and actions where we hold the U.S. United States government accountable for all the historical actions that it has taken um, and continues to take in our times, right? Well, what are we seeing also with the Muslim ban? Um, what are we seeing with TPS? We need to be outraged about TPS too. TPS for our Haitian sisters and brothers is to be terminated in January. And what's going to happen after that? Just, so, to, just we, to clarify quickly, TPS is a temporary protected status, which is a, a sort of similar uh, shield from deportation for uh, people who don't fall under DACA. Exactly, yes. Um, and 
what are, what we need to see these issues collectively, right? They're not single-handed. They're not single. Um, they're not alone issues. They're very um, interconnected and very um, much what we have to unite to fight against all of this, right? Because we're fighting against one superpower. Um, and so I think the moment that all of us continue to you know, use these talking points, right? Rather than the, you know, these innocent kids were brought here through Fono of their own and blaming our parents and further criminalizing our parents. Um, we are going to see the true liberation that we we foresee and that we we want. Um, and we we have to do it. Um, I, you know, I think the reason why we keep coming back um, to where we are right now, you know, even with DACA is because we have not reimagined what this what this could look like right what does it what does it look like by our communities meeting what does it look like um not having to for our families to be separated um you know all the traumatic things that they have to endure to even get to this country um and so these conversations have to happen they can happen they can happen at the same time um often people will say you have to focus on one thing and not focus on everything else um but for me and it you know i think the reason why we continue to be here is because we have not been able to tie these things together. And so hold, upholding the, the U.S. government accountable, um, also upholding organizations and nonprofits who are benefiting from this too accountable, right? And who are leading these organizations? Um, are they really advocating and organizing for immigrant rights? Um, you know, institutions like universities, colleges, um, as Marlene was mentioning before, also businesses like Apple, Microsoft. There has to be a complete, um, you know, sh shift in narrative from all these different parties, but it has to be led by the people who are directly impacted. Um, the people who really know, you know, do, who endured this day to day, who have gone through this for years. Um, and so we have to see this converse, these conversations, this shift being represented through the people who are directly impacted. Um, and I think the U.S. government is not playing that card. I think even the politicians who are on the left and who, um, you know, here and there come out saying that they're fighting for immigrant rights um, often are not. Um, and they need to be held accountable as well. So I think we need to be, um, for our communities, we need to be very strategic. We need to change our shift. We need to change um, the tone that we are, you know, even though we're asking, we need to be um, more, um, more concrete in what we want, more concrete in how we're holding these institutions accountable, uh, and more concrete in envisioning this different world that we want to live in and that we want to continue to create. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so it's important, regardless of what happens in the next six months, I'm, I'm really taking away that it's important for us to stay energized, um, for us to continue advocating for those who are not, uh, probably won't be helped by this legislation. Um, it's also worth noting, you know, on the on the left, I've noticed a lot of liberal punditry um, talking about, you know, what what are Democrats willing to bargain um, to to create a, a new Dream Act? You know, is it if the Republicans ask for a wall in exchange for a new Dream Act, is that okay? And uh, it's I think it's important to emphasize, Melissa, that you explicitly say, you know, militarizing the border is not um, it's not a price that that we're willing to pay. Um, so, you know, you both talked last time we spoke um, about the, the younger generation of dreamers, of uh, DACA recipients, um, and both of you expressed uh, curiosity about, you know, how are they going to become involved in the movement? Um, what is 
dreamer, DACA, or immigrant activism going to look like um, for this younger generation that uh, has come of age under DACA? And today we're seeing, um, unfortunately, a lot of college students, um, a lot of teenagers who are having to see the precarity of um, their situation sometimes for the first time, um, DACA's been around not that long, but um, but there are a lot of kids who maybe um, found out that they were undocumented at the same time that they qualified for DACA. Um, and so, you know, we're able to go to school, we're able to drive, have a, have a social security card. Um, so, you know, I, I, I guess what I'm wondering, um, and either of you can answer this or, or not, if it's if it puts you on the spot too much, you know, what do you think um, dreamer activism looks like? Um, if this is resolved in the sense that the, a DREAM Act, a path to citizenship for former DACA recipients, um, is actually signed, um, what do you think activism looks like at that point? Um, if you two, if other DACA recipients are then on a path to citizenship, even as so many people in our community, in your community, um, still don't have that option, uh, how do, do you think that changes um the way that dreamer organizers um, and activists kind of articulate, do you think there's a risk that um, it'll create the kind of a similar complacency that DACA did? Um, what, what does that look like to you? I know it's a hypothetical, but... Uh, uh, if I can just jump right in. So I think yeah. there's two parts to, to this question. Um, you know, the first part is like, what's going to happen with like undocumented youth um, who maybe now aren't eligible for DACA, right? I've heard many of them say, um, I don't know what it is to live undocumented, right? So kind of having no um, no memories of what it is to, you know, not go through that phase where you're completely undocumented. And now the fears that have been triggered in them, but also looking at that uh, through a positive lens, they're very um, motivated, you know, I've had this type of lifestyle for this long, um, I'm not willing to give it up so easily. And kind of also for them, it's a learning experience um, where they're learning about, um, you know, how fragile DACA is. Uh, many of them understood it as something permanent, as the DREAM Act. There was always this confusion of DACA is the DREAM Act, right? Um, and moving away from that and really understanding um, how temporary it is. I think a lot of young folks didn't understand that, um, didn't understand that it was temporary, didn't understand that it could be taken at any point. So kind of giving them a real wake up call and shaking, shaking them up. Um, and I think for that, if, you know, if they tap into that, it could be seen as a really great energizing moment to, um, get involved, um, get in, get active, um, kind of join the movement. But also what I've really seen is really interesting in these days is the non-DACA people who are showing up to the DACA protest to stand alongside with those who are DACA recipients, right? So acknowledge that maybe whatever type of reform is coming, those who didn't qualify because they've recently arrived or because, you know, they arrived in a year later or days after DACA was um, passed, how this, uh, you know, May 5th comes around, sorry, March 5th comes around, um, might be an opportunity for those who weren't excluded in DACA to become part of uh, something that Congress will pass for eligibility, right? So it has also, I think, awoken a lot of young folks to really get out there and join the movement and maybe even become um, aware of all of the the fragile state of how immigration works, how it's been formed, how it's forming. And because they're so young, um, I think the second part of this question is how us as kind of the older generation of activists are going to reach out to them and kind of indoctrinate them into this new mentality of this new platform that we're trying to 
promote, which is that undocumented immigrants as a whole deserve to be happy and not live with fear of deportation versus using the terminology that we were using before of young people deserve a pathway to citizens. So making sure us that the younger people who are coming on board, not shaming them, but engaging with them and allowing them to be part of those protests, to be part of those conversations and to be part of that dialogue and for them to understand that immigration is much long, much larger than just them and them receiving something. But it's about the families. It's about the domino effect. It's about understanding that immigrants are holding up communities, holding up society, that they are the backbone of this large American economy. And I think by doing that, um, both the young people who are coming into the movement and understanding what it really means to be undocumented and, you know, those who have already had experience of maybe being undocumented for five years, being undocumented for 10 years, allows for a really beautiful connection to establish and for a larger platform of immigration reform uh, advocacy to occur. Melissa, did you want to add anything? Um, no, I think everything Marlene said is um, is very much in point. Um, I think the only thing I would add is um, in addition to um, ensuring that they and that we actually, right, all of us, um, continue to dig in further um, and to really understand. Um, and I think I keep going back, um, like I said, to understanding the history and understanding where we're here now. Because, um, you know, if I, if, if when I was 17, if I would have, when I joined, um, if I would have known a lot of, right, of what we know today uh, and really had this grasp of understanding of, uh, of creation of government and, you know, how the government works, who is serving, what is serving, um, that if we are able to do that, um, specifically, uh, you know, many of us and those of us who have been in this for, for a couple of years, um, without shaming, as Marlene said, I think something that often happens is a shaming of, you know, where were you before? What, you know, and I don't think that's going to, you know, mutually con- contribute to a healthy platform or healthy relationship. Um, but we, what we can do is, you know, acknowledge that when we joined, um, there were, you know, things were happening because that was the, the current, the, the current circumstances at that time. And that this moment we're facing different circumstances. We're facing a different kind of, um, of government. Um, you know, not very much different from, um, other governments we've seen in past histories, but that this is our present time at this moment. So how can we, uh, take this time to really dig and formulate, um, a deeper critical analysis, right? To ensure that we're, criticizing and analyzing everything that's being thrown at us, um, that we are able to understand really how the system works um, and to further, you know, uh, be able to link uh, campaigns together. Um, I think that is something very powerful if we're able to see how one campaign to, to another movement are linked and connected to one another. Um, if for, it will further the vision, as I was mentioning before, of what is it that we want and what is it that we're fighting for. And I think um, our generations, our current generations right now, um, have have that that um, have those platforms. Um, and I think our responsibility um, is to ensure that we 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 we're not necessarily empowering, right? Because the idea that people are already in power um, is, is not so much that we are going to empower other people. Um, I think we also have to come with with the with the, with the idea and the belief that people already have their own power. Um, and all we're doing is to create a space and or sort of like a mirror for them to see that. So, um, tapping into that to ensure that we're, uh, furthering and, you know, polishing other different skills for them and for ourselves. Um, I think we're, we're facing different things at this moment, uh, that we can tap into. Um, and it is our responsibility to do so. 
I had um, a couple of questions. Um, first of all, I think when um, when you were discussing um, some of the kind of more historical aspects of the immigration debate, um, so just sort of the idea, I think that like what's been left out of the conversation, um, in addition to kind of the um, history of the dem- of the immigration um, debate, is sort of um, both the discussion that before two thousand twelve, um, you know, DACA didn't exist and that, you know, 800,000 people gained, you know, this temporary status as a result um, of DACA, but sort of what it was like before then, and then also what happened with DAPA. Um, So I'm going to try to answer the question. I'm not really sure. Um, So I think one of the things that I think has totally been ignored, you know, I'm, I'm Mexican, and, you know, these larger, larger, broader U.S. policies, such as NAFTA, um, specifically in Mexico, right? I can talk about, um, its impact, um, back home. Um, you know, sometimes we don't see these larger invisible hands at play. Um, but NAFTA, um, is partly responsible for the large migration of Mexicans to the U.S., uh, from the 90s, right? Um, and also for many of the countries, you know, south, south of the border, many like policies like NAFTA, um, have been implemented that have caused migration. So I think, when Melissa refers to these historical contexts, we're talking about policies, U.S. policies specifically in foreign, in foreign lands that have influenced, um, in one way or another, you know, migration. Um, NAFTA in Mexico has been especially, uh, impactful and dramatic in terms of the economy. While it allowed free goods to cross the borders, um, it didn't allow for, for people to cross the border with, you know, the same, um, the same fluidity which I think is important to note because just as jobs were being transferred and just as goods were moving back and forth, people were put off the table right away. And we know that the Mexico and the U.S. Um, economies are very tied together. Um, so when the U- Mexico opened up its borders to the U.S., you know, many products that were locally grown, such as corn, um, which is a fundamental part of you know many rural agriculture economies in Mexican state, um, they were totally, you know, out, out, outdone, you know, totally outdone. So the farmer who was growing corn and, and you know, living off of that and selling it to the U.S. now is kind of having to buy corn to feed its own animals and, you know, spending a ton of money on that. So that's forcing that person to get up and leave because they can no longer sustain their home, they can no longer sustain their family, and forcing them to go where the money is, right, to bring home. As we know, Mexico's third uh, largest economy contributor are um, money that's sent back home, right? So that's a large, large impact of where the money is kind of and we can visibly see, you know, the arrows going both ways um, in terms of trade. Um, but the only thing that can't flow back and forth are people. Um, so I think that's when we, when I really, when we talk about, you know, the larger migration movement um, and the historical historical context, you know, we can put it, we can talk about that program. We can also talk about the bootstrap program when Mexicans were freely invited into the United States, um, you know, to work and to labor in the fields. And then as soon as people came back from World War II, they were no longer needed, so they were sent home, right? So all these immigrants having kind of this economic contribution to the U.S. economy, and when they're no longer needed, um, they're dispensable, right? They can go back home. Um, so I think right now that's a part of the historical context that people need to understand about when we talk about uh, immigration and, you know, broadening the platform and understanding how complex the system is and understanding how many uh, aspects of U.S. Uh, policy, such as it's not just domestic, but it's also foreign. Um, and I think going back to your other uh, part of your question, which is, you know, what was it like to, to be undocumented before 2012? You know, I remember, you know, going to college 2010, being completely undocumented, 
and um, you know, just kind of hoping for the best. Um, DACA was not in existence, it's not something that we talked about. What we were advocating was for the DREAM Act of 2010. And I clearly remember being in the classroom, um, watching the vote go down um, and not passing by one vote. Right. So this is about seven years ago. But it's also important to remember that that's not the first time that the DREAM Act was up for vote. Years earlier before that, it was also up for vote. So to understand that this issue isn't just, you know, something recent, isn't just all of a sudden DACA, but this goes back 10 years plus, um, 15 years plus um, to some type of immigration reform needing to pass. And at that moment, um, what we were thinking about was, you know, if the dreamers get it first, then it opens up a larger conversation for uh, immigration reform to pass for our parents, to pass for our communities. And I think from there, we can move forward from that. But, you know, having seen the DREAM Act fail, not once, but twice, having seen a local uh, New York State DREAM Act also fail multiple times in New York uh, State, um, it's been devastating, honestly. Um, and to see that, that the relief for these families is incoming, it's frustrating. And I think that leads us to, to today where we're no longer willing to compromise. Or we're also no longer willing to, you know, give up our communities and say, you know, if you want to deport a million people, I know, give me something that's no longer fair. And I think also um, comparing both times, you know, pre-DACA and post-DACA, um, many people like myself have been able to receive a college education, have been able to uh, create families, have been able to further establish their roots um, here in this country. Um, so I think that's also another different uh, type of ideology that we're dealing with. Um, we're dealing with a lot of younger folks, maybe in their um, early, I would want to say late teens, early 20s, and now we're dealing with people who are early 20s, mid 20s. And I think of, over the course of the past five years, many people have been able to obtain college degrees. Um, so I think it's really important that um, people understand that living without um, status didn't mean that we weren't here. We were still here. We were just in different economies, right? I myself was a waitress and, you know, I still went to school and I said, you know, regardless if I have, um, papers or not, you know, the social security, I still want my degree. So I was working. And so that's kind of what my life looked like after I had been raised here my whole life. And, you know, people always have this idea that, um, you know, oh, you can just go back home or you can just get on a line. Um, but I've been raised here my entire life. There's nothing for me to go back to. Um, there is no line for me or, or my family to get onto, right? Um, so it just shows how deep um, immigration is and how it affects everybody's life. Um, and now moving forward, you know, after I've been able to obtain DACA, but, you know, I, DACA came out when I was still a college student and it totally caught me off guard. I didn't expect anything to happen. Kind of just used to us protesting and demanding and nothing coming. So when DACA came out, I think uh, may, many of the people who were highly involved understood that it was something temporary. Um, so it was kind of like make the best of it while you have it, um, which is an unfortunate way of viewing things. And I think one thing that's really important to, to understand about DACA is that it is not any type of status, right? Um, a lot of people say, oh, well, now you have something, right? No, not really, right? Because it only allows you uh, to work. You still can't tap into any of the benefits that you're paying into if you're working. Um, college is still, you know, you, you don't tap into financial aid automatically. Um, so there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings of DACA um, that's continued to exist, whether you have it or whether you don't have it. Um, so I think that's really important to understand that DACA didn't, you know, give you, put you on a path to citizenship, didn't automatically qualify you for anything, depending on which state you lived in. All right. Thankfully, we live in New York where you could tap into health insurance, a driver's license. 
and other such things. But if you're living in a state like Arizona, none of those things are available to you. So the difference between pre and post DACA is very much the same. Um, so understanding all of that, I think, is really essential and crucial when we're having these conversations about what it means to be undocumented. And just the fear, you know, the fear of living in deportation, I think, is a psychological, um, you could walk home uh, from school one day and your mom's not there. Um, or, you know, or you yourself could walk somewhere and, you know, if there's a raid, you're gone. Um, so all of that, I think, continues to exist, whether we're talking pre or post DACA. Um, the fear of deportation in our communities and separation of family continues to happen. Um, more than ever, more deportations have happened to people who haven't committed crimes. So, you know, so when Donald Trump comes out here saying that he's going to deport criminals and rapists and anybody who is that, the probability of that actually happening is very low. The most people that they, the majority of people that are being deported today are not criminals or not offenders. Um, they're uh, people who are hardworking, who are here contributing to their communities, who are mothers, who are fathers, you know, who are brothers, who are sisters, and upholding a community. So I think it's important to understand that all of that has existed before DACA and after DACA, and it's going to continue to exist with whatever immigration relief comes. Um, so just to wrap up, um, I want to emphasize um, that while Laura and I are both documented U.S. citizens, we, we stand in solidarity with you and with the rest of the immigrant community, um, as does NAPA as an organization. Melissa, thank you so much. Thank you. And Marlon, thank you as well. Thanks so much. Thank you. This has been Nakla Radio. Please check out the show notes for this episode if you're in need of resources or if you want to get involved. As always, you can find us online at nakla.org, at facebook.com slash nakla, and on Twitter at nakla, that's N-A-C-L-A. Nakla Radio is produced by me. Our editor is Laura Weiss, and our music is by Radio Harocho.